Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Vernon Burton, a longtime friend who is the Matthew Perry Distinguished Professor of History at Clemson University. And we're going to continue our conversation about South Carolina between world wars. So, Vernon, welcome back to the journal. Thank you so much, Walter. I always learn so much when I'm here with you. It's really an honor. Thank you. Well, it's kind of fun for those of us who are among the last remaining academics who do South Carolina history to talk about it. And the years between the wars were sad in many ways, certainly economically depressing, but they also were transformative. And particularly in the area of politics. But before we get into that, you grew up in rural Greenwood County, and you grew up with older folks who had just come through those years. So why don't you reminisce about what they talked about, how the economic depression and then the changes affected their lives and yours? I had not thought about it for a while, Walter, but you're absolutely right. 96 South Carolina was a rural community town. It was a cotton mill town. And as you and I, before we started, were reminiscing, it was uh, clear distinctions in terms of the rural folks, the town folks, and the mill folks among whites. It was not just an era of segregation. Uh, that is legal segregation, but there were class, maybe the wrong word, but I think I can use it in a historical context. There were class distinctions as well that were there. Uh, and I remember once giving a tour of the 96 cotton mill where I worked when I was 16 to 18, though I didn't live on the mill village. I had a paper route uh, from the time I was 9 to 18 in the morning that was uh, most of the Mill Village and was very familiar with it. Uh, and I gave a tour to uh, Drew Faust and some of her students at that time, University of Pennsylvania. And I remember the sort of misperception of these students from the University of Pennsylvania as they were get, getting the tour and they started talking to two of the operators there, Miss uh, Sherfield and Miss Horn, and they were clearly trying to get them to say something about how they felt exploited in the mill. Uh, but these women were very sharp, as so many of the people who worked in the cotton mill were. And I'll never forget, and I've used this line before, that Miss Sherfield said to Miss Horn, she, or Miss Rogers, she remarried, uh, and she said, yes, but it sure beats working out in a 100-degree sun picking cotton and not knowing if you're going to get paid to have a regular job that every week you get a paycheck. And that sort of summarized, I think, what people had come through, the Depression, which you described so well in your magnificent book, South Carolina, A History. We almost think of South Carolina as a third world country there in terms of people near starvation. Children, as you write about two brothers who would take turns who got breakfast that morning, uh, were just glad to get a job. The bow weevil comes in much earlier, but between that and the depression, just what could farmers do? And uh, it was a, an incredible time. And one of the major things is the development, not only of the textile industry, but that politics in South Carolina begins to move away from uh, government should really have no role in the lives of people or dealing with the economy, anything like that. As you write sort of the progressive era, when everyone else is leaving what we think about the progressive era, turning to experts, trying to make efficiency and things, South Carolina's uh, elected officials get very involved in this sort of uh, let's have the state government do something to help the people. And that's sort of what, of course, we're sort of post-World War II, but that with World War II, I think, is the great sort of memory of people is those hard times, the devotion to FDR, for instance, and sort of uh, with the New Deal, and of course, James F. Burns, the rise of James F. Burns is sort of a, since John C. Calhoun, probably the most important statesman 
uh, produced out of South Carolina at that time. Certainly in the 20th century. Yes, yes. But, but you mentioned the class within the white population, and early on at the turn of the last century, that was already being written about in, in editorials in the upstate. Are we going to create a caste within our mm-hmm within the white population. And I don't know how it was in, in Greenwood, but we do know in some towns, well, Rock Hill had three school systems. Same for 96. The students who lived on the mill village, parents worked in the mill, went first through the fourth grade. I, I, and, and this is an interpretation. It really started sort of being inculcated into being textile workers almost for life. And then they joined what was the town school for whites or rural and town. And then, of course, you had the black school system, which in some ways was relatively new. As you point out, there wasn't really until 1930 that African-Americans could get a state degree uh, that they graduated from high school. There were so few. So all of this is developing at this time. And in a mill town like 96, the mills were powerful. They provided, in fact, the football field, uh, the baseball field, uh, almost everything for, for the community. Of course, the mill village had its own police force. They sponsored the Boy Scouts, which was very important to me and, you know, really crucial for me personally. My father died when I was seven. Boy Scouts, I think, made tremendous difference in my life. And the meals sponsored that, had a meal cabin, uh, had uh, the leaders were from the meal, were really wonderful men for me, and actually great, great role models. The baseball teams, all of this was sort of dominated that era of 96. I think a lot of other towns of that nature. And the other interesting thing is that I think folks don't realize just how rural-oriented even though they were in the town or the mill village in 96, so many of these mill workers were still, they'd come off the farm. They were that generation. Several people who worked in the mill had farms, but they worked there to, so they could afford the farm and commuted in. As you and I have talked about earlier, our favorite, one of our favorite books, of course, is Ben Robertson's oh, yes. Red Hills and Cotton. And he's got a, that very emotional scene in there where one of his best farm workers is leaving to go to the mill. And it's from what you said earlier, because he could get a regular paycheck and he thought he would be able to make enough money so where his kids might be able to go to college. And it's amazing, Walter, we don't jump ahead, I guess, to another era, but I look back and see how successful so many of the young people who grew up on the mill have gone on to be successful in their lives in terms of economics and, you know, uh, college graduates and things. So with all the criticism one may have, it made a huge difference in people. One other thing we should probably set the framework is this was the era of really total uh, segregation. And there were just no opportunities much for black men to work. Black women could work for domestics. Ironically, as low paid as people perceived mill workers, mill workers are able to hire black domestics or what were euphemistically uh, called nurses who would be in their homes, take care of the kids while they, black nurses while they worked in the mill. But for African-American men, very few jobs outside of farming, which as you know is in such decline. In 1915, South Carolina enacts a statute after a little instance in Lawrence, I believe, in which it says that black and whites can't work in the same textile mill. And that was pretty much the only industry. In, in 96, for instance, there was a cotton seed 
mill where they and African Americans worked there, and there was a little sort of a, a black housing area or mill village for that, and at the brickyard, and those were very rare uh, to get the kind of uh, salary jobs as opposed to just pickup jobs or working as a farm laborer for African Americans, and they were disfranchised pretty much. Whereas during this period, you have the labor unrest that we're talking about. That uh, of course the the, the in Honey of Path, where people are killed, but 96. And this is part of what people talked about was the strike. And it's always fascinated me, and I was hoping I'd get someone to do this study. Why in 96? Excuse me, we're talking about the Great Textile Strike. Yeah, the Great Textile Strike of 34. And uh, it's always 1934. It's always fascinated me why in Greenwood, the union actually closed the mills and was successful on strike. In 96, they didn't. And both mills were owned by self-mills. Same thing, nine miles apart. What was the difference? I think some of it might have been the railroads came through Greenwood and they had unions with railroads. I'm not sure, but it would be an interesting study. And that's a that's a supposedly about. I think that's very important about politics. We we also see the rise, of course, of of uh, Johnson, who does somewhat like Coley Bleach, but much better in terms of real economic things he wants to do for people. Johnson rises the latter part of this period that we're looking at as a major politician and legacy of of class. The mill, the mill boy attorney, you know, (laughs) as they called him. And he was very proud of being a lint head. That's right. He took class not like Tillman had and not like Blee's had in the period of when it was really sort of a raucous kind of political organization. But he didn't run away from it and took pride in his um, uh, in his being a, a working class meal person and did some interesting things uh, legislative. And I like to contrast the two. I don't think anyone's really done this, but we should think about it sometime. Now, James F. Burns also grew up poor. Dad died when he was young, really didn't finish high school or anything like that. But he sort of took on the persona of the Southern gentleman upperclassman. I like to think about going from the Catholic Church to the Episcopal Church, you know, and and becomes the the Southern gentleman. But he's also from that working class, in this case, Charleston Irish uh, thing. And look at those two. And I think it's saying something about people rising in South Carolina in politics. I think about the labor situation during the 30s, and it was interesting to me, and I have had some people actually say they were shocked to learn that the General Assembly investigated what was going the labor this is before the great mm-hmm, strike right. this is in the late 20s investigated labor conditions and blamed management for the stretch out which made people tend more machines right. and it, work harder it's actually a great report it almost we should publish it sometime to see people show what they did. And am I wrong? I believe there was some reform about the number of hours and things after that report. They reduced the number of hours in in the mill. Mm -hmm. But by the time you get to the Depression after 1929, mills are going on reduced days every other day or sometimes every other week. And when the mills are closed, there's no paycheck. Exactly, and uh, and that was and I think it's uh, it's particularly hard for my students to grasp just how thankful people were to get a paycheck. They don't understand how if you were on a farm, which most people had been, that you're dependent on your crops. You might be able to raise something to live on, but you have no money to pay taxes. You have no money to do almost anything. And uh, with the meals, you got a paycheck. And, and there were other little interests, too. And this is the period when people begin to think in terms of, um, of uh, how we can bring in industry. And I've thought about this when I was thinking about our talk today because it's so interesting. We tend to think of this uh, leadership generation after World War II that sort of transformed South Carolina, Governor West, Governor Hollings, uh, Strom Thurmond, though he sort of straddles both a little bit more. But this is also the era in which they come of age. Now, we think of World War II, I think, being the 
the catalyst, the turning point. But I often wonder what they were seeing in terms of that affected them to become such effective leaders in South Carolina to move South Carolina toward a more progressive, in the better sense of that word, state, more inclusive state, those sorts of things. Well, Farnham, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Professor Vernon Burton of Clemson University about South Carolina between World War One and World War Two. Well, the 1920s talk about hard times. Everybody thinks about well after the stock market crash in 1929, but right after World War One, cotton prices collapse. Having been historically high, textile, same thing in terms of just uh, producing for the war. The, the South Carolina becomes like the leading the state le- for producing textiles, and then the bottom drops out of that. All before the Great Depression. The Depression had hit South Carolina before yeah. the well, stock market. You not only have the cotton prices collapse. The boll weevil enters the state and, in fact, in one season completely destroys sea island cotton. Which never comes back, does never it? No comes, one. And it was never comes back. such an extraordinary crop. But, but by the mid-1920s, uh, and I've seen statistics county by county where, let's just say, somebody might, a farmer, and there one or two of these cases I looked at, produced 600 bales of cotton. That's, he's a big farmer. That's right. Next year, he produced 60, 90% reduction. Almost a third of the farms in South Carolina, they were facing foreclosure. And people just shut the door and left. I mean, that's, that's hard to think about today. And the Great Migration, you know, people are well aware of the Great Migration of African Americans out for obvious reasons, not only to get jobs, but also political rights and opportunities. But the Great Migration of Whites, I mean, you pointed out in your book, every state has South Carolina. There are more South Carolinians in certain cities than there are in towns like Greenwood and, 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 and other areas of the state. Uh, and our friends in the, like Chuck Kovacic in geography have tracked these. African Americans primarily went north and east following the railroads. Right. Whites moved south and west all the way to the West Coast. Right. And in, 19, in the 1940 census, one-fourth of the people who listed South Carolina as their place of birth were living in another state. And, and I think people haven't been aware of how culturally they influenced those other places, how Southern some of these other places became black and white in ways that uh, uh, are very interesting, I think. And South Carolina, which in the early 20th century had actually recruited immigrants from Southern Europe. In those days, they called also the Levant, you know, Syria right. and Lebanon and Greece. But South Carolina had the smallest immigrant population of any state. And they had recruited those folks, not the Northern Europeans, but the Southern Europeans, and they described them as it was okay because they were almost white. white that honorary whiteness. And, the, and of course, this has appeared that for the first time, I believe it's 1923, certainly about the 1930 census, the first time in quite a while that whites become not much, but barely a majority of the state. And that is so critical. You look back at V.O. Key which he talks about race in all the states, but in South Carolina, he puts the colon and says, politics of race. And that still overshadows. I think we've got some good history work to do to see how these people like uh, Governor Thurman's Hollings and West, uh, uh, Donald Russell, and, uh, growing up in this period, the, the post-war period, how that, that transferred, you know, the other thing politically that I think people probably today aren't aware of is it was in V.O. Key, he sort of described South Carolina at the end of the book as a parliamentarian, that that the, the head of the Senate, uh, Edgar Brown or Saul Blight later others, was sort of like a prime minister, that it was, this, it was the senator in each county 
who really had the power and the legislative delegation uh, that had so much power and made all the decisions. Of course, if you want to try to do some research, you have to spend so much time looking at all these local bills that are being passed in the legislature at that time. Uh, and because of disfranchisement, which is really set in thoroughly by this time, you will have, say, 500 people in Jasper or McCormick County who are white who can vote, and they have the same representative power in the legislature as, say, Spartanburg or, or uh, Pickens or somewhere with which may have four to five or ten times more eligible voters because of the disfranchisement of African Americans. It gives enormous power to the local legislative delegation to sort of Almost un, not unpressed in it, but it's different than most states, even in southern states to a certain extent, but certainly in the United States mm -hmm. and sort of uh, the way South Carolina politics developed. Well, and Key also referred to it as the politics of friends and neighbors. Right. And that's exactly what you actually see, I think, uh, developing here as you get broader and broader. It, First time you have in a long time anyone elected from Charleston after the long years of the Tillman railing against Charleston as this city unto itself and, and uh, the Charleston elite and the Charleston aristocrat. So you begin to see for the first time with the family and neighbors sort of an expanding way of, of connecting the state to get people elected. But it's still a friends and neighbors pattern. I think we see a lot of that even today. Not as much as we used no, to. No, <laughs> not at all like we used to. But if you want to check the power, the visible power of the pre-1960s where one person, one vote came right. in and we had senatorial districts straddling three counties. The Voting and Rights you, Act. Uh, go look at where a courthouse was built or a hospital was built. And at the top, it's going to have Senator Vernon Burton. That's right. He's going to be ahead of the mayor. He's going to be ahead of – even if there are congressmen involved, the state senator is going to be listed first. And It's a powerful reminder, isn't it, of the absolute sort of control of local areas that the state senator had. In the Interestingly, because of that power in the 1920s and 30s, the – the entrenched senators in the low country made sure what state funds were available were funneled their way. It's what existed before the Civil War where the low country power structure, they might not elect a governor, but the key positions in the House and the Senate were there. Yeah. And that's, I mean, this, we're jumping ahead again, but when, of course, Strom Thurmond runs for, for governor, he calls it the Barnwell Ring, but it's Edgar Brown and Saul Blatt and Colleton County and others say, we've got to do something for the low country, and they start using uh, state government to bring things there. The upcountry, interestingly enough, it sort of developed. And that was even something when I was a boy. We sort of took pride that the upcountry with its meals and things in the 50s and 60s had good roads. It's hard to believe our roads are so bad now. But the the local areas in Greenville, Greenville they raised their own taxes and built roads where the low country really had not yeah. done that. Part of it was the taxable base, of course. Yeah. You mentioned that highways, and of course, in the, in the late 1920s, even with the economic depression already in South Carolina, they passed a huge highway bill over the objections of the folks from the upcountry because yeah. they said, we've already built our highways, and now we're going to be taxed to build those highways. And they and challenged it all they, the way to the state Supreme Court, and then... I believe, if I'm not mistaken, because the Supreme Court was um, divided. It was the circuit judges. Am they, I right? They, they had, I, I cannot remember the I, legal term, but it was on bonk. They had all of the appellate yeah. judges. Right. And the, the law was declared constitutional, but by a very small. small majority. Yeah. But think about it, Walter. Columbia and the Congaree River not being able to connect, you know, there. And then Charleston, these bridges are built at that time that we think of our South Carolina today. Can you imagine 
not having bridges to sort of link these cities and what we think of as Charleston and Columbia now, that's pretty amazing to get those kind of things done in a state that is suffering economically at the time. And they even passed the 601 bill for educational reform. It was the six-month school and the one month from the county, 601. But that's a pretty extraordinary statement of progressivism as we think of it later of education is important enough. We have to have well, education. And we said, first time too, you get real African-American high schools, the few there were, to allow African-Americans to get a, like Ben Mays, who's, you know, as you know, one of my great heroes, uh, really had to go to South Carolina State to get his high school diploma, or what would be equivalent of one at the time. Well, of course, the real renovation of or modernization of the schools occurred after World War II with right. Governor Burns. A, but Burns really gets to power as this champion of the New Deal <clears throat> most of the time, but certainly he and FDR were very close, and we see the power. I mean, I'm just fascinated by Burns. He rises to power. First of all, he's used by Wilson and, and Teddy Roosevelt and others to be the go-between between Ben Tillman. And then he gets to Congress, and then from Congress to the Senate after having lost to Cottonette Smith the first time. It's interesting to know why he lost. Yes. Because the Klan was on the rise in South Carolina in the years after World War I. Public officials joined. The Speaker of the House hosted a Klan barbecue right here in Columbia at Klan headquarters. And upstate politicians in particular were in bed with with the Klan and with church leaders to enforce morality. Prohibition area in South Carolina was still dry. Yeah, but Jimmy Burns refused to join the Klan and Vioki and others think that really caused him. Well, you've got to hand it to Burns having the courage, actually, to stand up against the Klan, and he always... Was that it? Burns is one of the most fascinating characters, I think, except for perhaps coming back and leading the fight to maintain separate but equal. He came very close to being one of the greatest and could have maybe had a memorial to him. He was so talented. You know, he became known as the Cardinal Richelieu of the Senate. He was so powerful there. FDR appoints him to the Supreme Court, which is something to think about in in this time period. And he only comes off because FDR needs him. They have a close, close friendship. He comes back to be what FDR calls the assistant president to run the war and then afterwards secretary of state. And I think there's really good evidence that FDR really would have liked to have had Burns as his vice president if he could have chosen who he wanted to. But FDR's fourth term was no sure thing. That's right. And key blocks in the Democratic coalition in the North and Midwest, he had to have the growing African-American vote and he had to have the union vote. And those two segments of the coalition opposed Burns. Yeah, and and it probably was the union even more than the NACP and the black uh, opposition to Burns that, that started because when he was sort of the domestic president, as FDR referred to him, mobilizing for the war effort, he came into opposition with the unions. And like the South Carolina tradition has always been this strong anti-union position. It's, it's hit a number of people from justices and others uh, to block their appointments later, I think. And of course, one of the people who was giving Burns advice all this time was another South Carolinian, and that's Bernard Baruch. Yes. And one of the most powerful and most important and influential, uh, particularly to FDR at the time. There are several biographies of of Burns, and I I think the one that's entitled Sly and Able, some people say that's derogatory. No. I think it just gets him. Gets him. Yes, he was clever. He was clever. Sharp on his feet. But he was also, he knew how to make the system work. I mean, look, being in the Senate, he was the junior senator, and 
Cotton Ed Smith was still the top dog, and Burns was able to work around him. Right. Somehow gave Cotton Ed enough prestige, but Burns controlled the appointments. And Burns really was a modernizer. I don't know if that's a—you really want to use that term, but, I mean, he really was pushing economic development, education, all of these things, I think, and certainly never went ever, I think, to the places of the Tillmans and the Bleases that others were still—I mean, there's no doubt that Burns— supported segregation. I brought the one quote that I think sort of epitomizes this, if you'll allow me to to read it. And this is 1920. And he's a congressman. And he's writing to to Ball, the editor of of the newspaper, and of course, but it is certain that if there was a fair registration, they, by whom he means African Americans, would have a slight majority in our state. We cannot idly brush the facts aside. Unfortunate though it may be, Our consideration of every question must include the consideration of this race question. And I think that's a huge, huge difference in terms of an approach that plays out over time. And one of the tragedies of our state, but we forget something we hadn't really talked about. Starting after World War I, there's a convention right here in South Carolina of African-Americans challenging, wanting the vote. So there's a lot going on under the radar, I think, some above the radar in terms of blacks really trying to find ways to fight, I think, much more for the vote. I I think we tend to think it was for the end of segregation, but at the time, I think it was much more equality, equality of of schools, equality and and public segregation to stop, you know, that you can ride in the same buses and things like that. Well... In, in terms of local politics, the New Deal began to upset some of the, the power structure because, again, you grew up in a small town, the local bank that had survived, oh, and by, yes. by the time you got to 1930, South Carolina had lost literally hundreds of local banks and over half their national banks. But the landowners, the shopkeepers, Everybody controlled the economic system, but with the coming of the New Deal and public programs, they were able to get around what was going on. There's a quote from Newberry County about some white farmers were furious that in terms of getting assistance from the Agricultural Adjustment Act, they had to stand in line behind black farmers. And even Cotton Ed Smith, who you know had his wars with FDR, he was able to go with the Agricultural Adjustment Act. That was one he could he could stomach <laughs> in terms of this outside involvement thing. But people, as you said, people were losing everything. I mean, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that some people were on the verge of starvation. You know, th- there was no welfare system backup at all. I think South Carolina is one of the few states that didn't even have old age no. Uh, pensions or any or anything for children that came that may have come about in this period with not just from the federal government with the the incredible program but you've mentioned in in your book just how important the WPA the CCC and these things were and look at what they did in the state I mean that really is part of that modernization progressive, late progressive era for us in South Carolina that shapes our state today. Well, South Carolina did not have any kind of social safety net. The only pensions were for Civil War veterans. And faithful slaves. Oh, and the widows. Widows Mm -hmm. and and faithful slaves. Mm -hmm. Nothing for the blind, Mm -hmm. nothing for dependent children. And so these programs had to be created a new. Actually, there had been a public welfare board, but Governor John G. Richardson had abolished it. Right. That was uh, this interesting in that period, too. It's, it's South Carolina's sort of uh, our liberty, our independence, our uh, everybody on their own two feet. Uh, well, and, and of course, Richards was quite different from his predecessors. Right. Uh, he had decided that South Carolina was going to be a uh, a mountain of morality and it's upstate, uh, you know, prohibitionist. And- yeah, he was going to push. In fact, he did push the enforcement of 
the blue laws. Right. Uh, and that meant golf courses weren't supposed to <laughs> operate. He, he had people arrested at the resorts in Aiken County right. for playing golf on Sunday. And since it happened in Aiken County, several wags made the point that you could get arrested for playing golf on Sunday in Aiken County, but you could not get arrested for lynching. Yeah, I remember that's, that's a very poignant thing. Vernon, we need to pause a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Professor Vernon Burton of Clemson University about politics in South Carolina between World War One and World War Two, And the churches were very important in terms of politics, enforcing those blue laws. Um, the whole question of once prohibition was repealed, whether a county was going to be dry or wet. And, uh, of course, the old saw was that the bootleggers and the church folks went <laughs> to keep South Carolina dry uh, because bootlegging still was a nice business. And it also gave not the same thing as Tillman, but it gave the upcountry to say, and then there's that sinful city down there. Charleston is sort of, a again, a city upon its uh, rivers as opposed to the rest of South Carolina. According to the folks at the then News and Courier, uh, lamented the whole question of prohibition that it had ruined South Carolinians' taste for good liquor. <laughs> they, bought, they bought their whiskey from Hell Hole Swamp instead of imported Madeira. Um, and now think about it, we're, uh, we're back to having white lightning sold in the stores and they're sort of the, uh, we've come full circle, haven't we now? This is the uh, sort of craft beer of the hard liquor. <laughs> well, in this time, again, whatever issues were there politically, churches and what the, the clergy said carried a lot of weight, whether Huge it's not amount. just prohibition, but it's, it's the, the blue laws, the morality of a particular politician. All of this is— Are, are evangelists brought in by the, by the mill owners and others to sort of— you know, uh, help control, I just control is probably the wrong word, but influence people. And of course, on the mill, one of the things grew up in 96, you not only had the uh, segregation in terms of the schools, but the mills built churches in the Methodist and a Baptist church on the mill for the mill workers. And it's sort of interesting to me that a number of mill workers though sort of did their own churches uh, with the Church of God or the Pentecostal right outside. Those churches were built right outside the mill village by the workers themselves. And so you also have a, even a—so there's a First Baptist Church and there's a Temple Baptist Church. There, in other words, the town church. And then you also have the rural as well. So it, when we're talking about this class, it, it reinforces in subtle ways even through the culture and the religions at the time. Well, and South Carolina at this time was solidly Democratic. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it voted the highest percentage for the Democratic Party almost every time in this thing, even with the unpopularity of— uh, I mean, it was like at 98 percent. And then when Roosevelt runs for the fourth term, even there, it's 95 or 90. It's way. But I think no state is more committed to the to the Democratic Party. It's fun to read back over V.O. Key, as I did look back, to think about just how he never foresaw that this state would be a one party state pretty much again, but as a Republican and he argues, of course, that that's what made politics as it was with the friends and neighbors and the factions. And well, in fact, when Bernard Maybank, who went from being governor to senator, was running for re-election, he was attacked because he was associated with the National Democratic right. Party and all of this federal money. And what he did is he toted up what... South Carolina sent to the federal government in taxes and what it got 
back and he said, look at what the good, look at the good deal I have helped bring this money to South Carolina. And he blew his opposition. Yeah, it was great. Blew it out and blew them away. It was really great. The other political election that is so interested is, in fact, when you have uh, Edgar Brown and Cotton Ed Smith and Olin Johnson running. And there's a great quote quote by uh, uh, Edgar Brown that says, either Olin and I could have beat him except once FDR entered it supporting Olin Johnson as an outside force against the South Carolina senator outside interference, then that's what caused us to lose. I thought that was pretty perceptive, probably. Well, see, that's one of the ironies today is state politicians want to bring in all the outsiders they can. But in the South Carolina of this period is local friends. It was, again, family and friends and of course, what Roosevelt wanted to do, Cotton Ed Smith was a thorn in his side. He wanted to get rid of him. And so you've got Edgar Brown, who is chairman of the state Democratic Committee, and you've got Governor Olin D. Johnson running against him. But once the word got out, Cotton Ed coasted. Yeah. And we should probably mention the famous incident that sort of is leading us toward what we're not covering here, though there was, I would argue, a nascent civil rights movement in South Carolina at the time. And the quote, like the the new Negro that Ben Mays wrote about, a famous essay when he's at South Carolina State and things, but it is at the Democratic Convention that Cotton Ed really cements his commitment that all white South Carolina politicians had to, to white supremacy, is when an African-American minister is going to give an invocation and he walks out. It almost becomes a mantra as he says, you know, uh, this almost an anti-religious thing. And he's I could hear John C. Calhoun saying, good for you. Reaching down from the sky. It was called the Philadelphia story because it convinced. On the stump, and of course, this is when you literally campaigned in every county and all races. And you might have Edgar Brown and others talking about issues, but when Cotton Aid got there, the crowd was, Tell us the Philadelphia <laughs> story, Cotton. Uh, now, Cotton Ed Smith probably was in his own way, a political genius. I think so. He didn't stand for a whole lot except to support cotton. And he literally wore a cotton bowl in his lapel. This is a time when gentlemen still wore boutonnieres. But his was a cotton bowl, and he had leaned down and talked to it about— Didn't he kiss it, too? He kissed it. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My girl, Miss Cotton. (laughs) And hey, it worked. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, it's amazing that he lost. Actually, um, you know, that's another story. But it's he was very powerful. I think people have sort of not understood how powerful he was in the state. Well, again, U.S. senators still had considerable power. Yeah, not that they don't today, but patronage. Vernon, Alfred's giving me a, a sign that we need to. The next two or three minutes kind of wrap things up. Oh, my goodness. We just started, Walter. <laughs> <laughs> so if if you wanted to give us a summary of, of politics in South Carolina between wars, how would you say it? How would you run it? You know. Well, it you come out of World War One with Governor Manning having done some very interesting, and then there's suddenly this turn to what, you know, uh, there's the famous phrase about the you know, return to normalcy, which I'm not sure is a word, but we're going to comment and sort of moving away. And then South Carolina begins, I think, for the first time, unless you consider Tillman a progressive, and there's some argument, begins to embrace the period that was before called the progressive era, progressive movement, and starts trying to use the government, particularly, as you said, uh, low country politicians use the state government to do things for development for the state as opposed to you leave that alone. The upcountry and the counties there were doing it at the local level, building their own roads and actually schools and other, other sorts of things. Very interesting period. What makes all this 
most interesting is, of course, that is you have finally settled in to the era of segregation and pretty much total disfranchisement. And, and what we haven't spent a lot of time talking about is how African-Americans are fighting this. Of Those African-Americans who went off to fight to bring democracy to the world expect they're going to have it when they get back home. And it's not. That leads to a lot of migration out, but it also leads to the formation of the NACP, which meant a little bit different things to different people at that time, particularly some progressive whites were supportive and some not so progressive were accepting of it. You get Charleston demanding they have black teachers in the black schools. So there's a lot going on we haven't gotten to. But the most interesting thing to me, as I think about it, as South Carolina has to deal with what is really a major economic crisis. And we talk about economic crisis, it's not like your stock's going bad, but this farming state where people are near starvation, how are they going to survive? What can they do for a job? There's no dole, there's no uh, Social Security net or anything else in the state. And so people have to figure out what they're going to do. And it's a remarkable group of leaders. I think, again, James F. Burns is one of the most talented of all South Carolina statesmen, politicians. It was an amazing and a good example. Olin Johnson fascinates me. That We sort of haven't realized all of these people, Bernard Maybank, coming in to do things in different ways. And, of course, you then move into the New Deal, which we know is a great changing point in all of Southern history, but I think really does affect South Carolina as we still have the neighbors and friends sort of era of politics, but you're beginning to find ways to put together coalitions uh, to go beyond the kind of demagoguery that had allowed Ben Tillman to win in elections. And I also think, though, I mentioned that there'd been this sort of anti-Charleston sinful city compared to the rest. I think there's more of an identification coming out of these hardships of the state itself as a, as a state that we need to pull ourselves up somehow. We got to have help. Or as you know, as we talked about, uh, Cotton and Smith uh, supporting the AA, the WPA, the CC, all these programs that come in that Burns and others were bringing the New Deal really begin to shape South Carolina. And something I hadn't thought about till you asked me to do the program is uh, this new generation of we've always thought of them as being influenced completely by World War II, but that generation of World War II veterans who become the leaders of state afterwards, including my good friend, Senator John Drummond, who grew up with this depression and this hard times and the changes, go off to war and then come back. And we see a, a new South Carolina, I think, really emerging uh, that that uh, is still predating the civil rights movement, but uh, it's all going on at that time and pretty soon can't be ignored, the national issues. Well, the predecessors to the State Development Board in the last year of the war, uh, 1944, sent out a questionnaire to servicemen, uh, and the Army made them. They couldn't say just to whites and right. go to everybody. Right. And it came back, we need better education. We need support to help get businesses started. And rural folks said, we need to have industry. We want to get off the farm. Right. So that depression experience, coupled with what happened in World War II, as you say, really did pave the way for South Carolina to take new directions after 1945. And we didn't really talk about it, but you mentioned the centrality of South Carolina leaders to the nation, where you have Burns and Bernard Baruch and others who are influ so influential in federal government or in the, the directions that the government is going at this time. Well, Vernon, I hate to, but we've got to sign off. I want to thank you for coming back to be on the journal and to talk about a topic which I think still resonates today. Absolutely. And thank you, Walter. As I said, I learn so much from you every time, and then you give me a lot to think about now. Mm -hmm.
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Vernon Burton and I have been professional friends and colleagues now for decades. It's always fun to interact with him because his knowledge and appreciation of our state, particularly the political scene, is unparalleled. It was an interesting South Carolina political world between 1919 and 1941, and I believe the conversation with Vernon Burton helped us explore and learn about some heretofore unknown aspects of our state's rich political history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.